Uh, so coming up this fall, um, Holly and I are going to be celebrating our, our five-year uh, anniversary. And it, it's kind of crazy to, to process a little bit of that because just about five years ago, uh, we were leaving Park to go and revitalize Elmwood in, in my first uh, pastorate there. And it was this high-speed, crazy season where we got married in October, and then in November, we started at Elmwood. And now we're back almost half a decade later planting Grafted, and it's just really cool to see uh, God's faithfulness not only in our lives, but also in this uh, church community as well. And so we're looking forward to celebrating that. But I wanted to start out this morning by sharing uh, some of my infinite wisdom that I've learned from five years uh, of marriage here. I'm going to break it up into two things that I've learned. First thing is this, that I got the better end of the deal when I got married, and it's really important that I always remember that I got the better end uh, of the deal. I I have to to recognize that Holly has to deal with me, um, and I get the joy of just watching her grow and and grow not only into being uh, my wife, but the mother of our kids, and just being my friend, and that is an amazing thing. The second thing is I've learned through marriage that I am far more foolish and sinful that I could ever have conceived of to begin with. When you come up here, and we we were married here, when we were up here and Andrew was marrying us, he didn't say this. He did not say that the Holy Spirit was going to use Holly, or excuse me, he did not say, yeah, that the Holy Spirit was gonna use Holly as his highlighter for all of the broken areas in my life. They don't tell you that when you're up there at the altar. They don't tell you the, the amazing ways that the, the Lord is going to use your spouse. There's this weird thing that happens when you get married, where all of those joys, all of those good things that the Lord has begun sowing into your life before you get married, they become even sweeter when you have someone to share them with. But as I said, there's this weird thing that God will lovingly do, where he takes your spouse, he highlights all these areas where there's still brokenness, all these areas where you need to repent, And I think that that reality is not confined uh, just to marriage. I think that that's something that we all can experience. Uh, It just so happens that in marriage, it's kind of this crucible, right? Where you're regularly seeing this person all the time, and you're coming into close relationship with them. But this is a tension that we experience with maybe uh, a close friend, Maybe you have a family member that you're just coming into contact with all the time. If you have a coworker that, that you get to know, what, what you find is that you, you continue to grow in deeper and deeper appreciation for who they are and who God has made them to be. But there's also things uh, that irritate you about them. And, and rest assured, I just want you to know that that probably goes both ways. If you get closer, close enough to somebody. In, in God's grace, what we find is that close relationships can be very, very illuminating. And as hard as that can be at times, as painful as that can be at times, I think that that's good. And I think that that's right. Because oftentimes those close relationships are the things that, the means, we might say, that God uses to move us from A to B and from B to C. In my life, I know some of the greatest growth that I have had in the Lord has been through the community of God's people as I've gotten close to them As we look at Psalm 45 this morning, this tension that we feel of who we are and who God is calling us to be is going to be expressed, and we're going to explore this in Psalm 45, because in Psalm 45, we meet two people in a very unique, in a very vulnerable and intimate moment in their life. We meet a bride and a groom 
on their wedding day. And by the way that the text talks about the groom, he is probably not just anybody. He is probably a king of Israel or coming king of Israel. And he's most likely from the line of David, David being the most beloved king in Israel's history. So when we look at this, we're not just reading a song. We're reading a song. When you look at the subtext of Psalm 45, it says, to the choir master, right? We are looking at something that would have been sung on their wedding day. It's a beautiful moment for the people of God. And as we look at this, we're going to navigate this tension that exists not only for them as they're moving into a new season, but what it means for God to move us into the next season of who he desires us to be. So would you stand with me? We're going to stand in honor of God's word and read all the way through Psalm 45 today. Psalm 45, the subtext is to the choir master, according to the lilies, a masquil of the sons of Korah, a love song. Here's what it says. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many color robes she is led to the king. With her virgin companions following behind her, with joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your father shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Go ahead and have a seat. What an interesting text. As you probably see, the text is broken up into kind of two parts. We're exploring the two ends of the relationship in the wedding. So the first person we meet this morning in the text is the victorious groom king. The victorious groom king. The psalmist starts out this morning by describing uh, what is going on in some really eloquent language, right? He talks about uh, his tongue being like a pen of a scribe, a skilled scribe, as he is building up the king. And I want us to just take a minute to recognize the way that the king is described here. He is called to be a mighty warrior, right? Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. This is verse 5. He's supposed to be conquering the nations around him on God's behalf. And this makes sense in the ancient world. 
This is very normal because the king is the one who would partner with the deity in order to protect and provide security for the people. And the same would be true for Israel, where this new king, as he's getting married, coming into power here, is partnering with Yahweh, the God of Israel, in order to provide the people with what they need. And so if you are going to encourage the king, this is the way you would do it, through military prowess. But there is something distinct in this text that might not stand out to you. There is a way in which Psalm 45 is setting this king apart from the nations. And it is in the way that he is called to rule that would set him apart. That instead of leveraging some divine mandate in order to feed his ego, in order to bully the people, what do we see? We see that he is called to rule justly that he is called to rule humbly. One of the uh, scholars over at the Bible Project, Tim Mackey, some of you are probably familiar with him, one of the ways that he puts this is that the king of Israel was called to be a Bible nerd. And I want us to just explore that here for just a moment by looking at Deuteronomy 17. You can look at it here on the screen. In Deuteronomy 18, we hear about the the, uh, requirements for a prophet, but in Deuteronomy 17... Before Israel ever had a king, before Psalm 45 was ever written, here is what the king of Israel was supposed to be like in chapter 17, verses 18 through the end of the chapter. And when he, being the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and by doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, neither to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children Israel. So what do we see? We see that the king of Israel, in contrast to many of the kings of the ancient world, was supposed to be humble and just. And the way that that was supposed to happen was that he was supposed to write his own copy of God's law and regularly be meditating on it and ruminating on it and allowing it to shape him into the person that the Lord wanted him to be. He was supposed to effectively, as the king of the nation, bring himself into submission under God, the true king. But the thing that should catch our attention and potentially make us uncomfortable is verses six and seven. Look there with me. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Very strange. Does it not seem, as we read this, that the text is apparently calling this king who's coming into power God? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This kind of poses a tension for us. Like, it's strange, and I don't really want to relieve the tension. The question is, what do we make of it? We could look at it in terms of saying, okay, the word that's used for God can also be translated as judge. Maybe so. But but I don't think that the translation that we're looking at, if you have an ESV in front of you, your throne, O God, is a bad translation. I think it is valid. I think what we're seeing is an identification of the king of Israel with the God with whom he represents. Let me make this clear, that there is no evidence 
that Israel ever worshipped their king as a deity. This did happen in other nations, like Egypt would be an example of that, where they viewed their king as being divine, as being a god. And yet what we just read in Deuteronomy 17 would preclude that, that if the king was reading the law, he would recognize like, hey, that's not for me. That's not my place. That would actually violate the Ten Commandments. But what we do see is that there was a very close relationship between the king and between his God. And when we look at 1 Chronicles 28, what we find is that the king of Israel sat on what the text says is the throne of God's kingdom. And so we're left in this weird spot where the king of Israel is called both God and or judge, and yet he is serving God, the true king and the true judge. And I'm not going to relieve that for us. I don't want to give us some like solution and just wipe that away. I want us to just stew on that, and maybe we'll find some resolution at the end of the message this morning. But I want to step back and just think about what a beautiful moment this is for God's people. As they're celebrating with this bride and with this groom, they're literally experiencing the promises of God coming to fruition. Because what do we see in the Hebrew Bible? We see that God made King David a promise. And what was the promise? Is that you will have sons, you will have a dynasty, and that throne will never come to an end. And so as this king from the line of David is Uh, coming together with his wife, as he is taking the throne, as they are having children, and those children continue to take the throne, they are actually watching God's promise take place right in front of them. It's an amazing thing for them. It's this amazing moment of political unity for God's people as they're able to see God's faithfulness actually in action. But let's consider the other part of the relationship. Let's consider the, the glorious bride of the king. And what it says, we see the shift to where they begin to describe her, her beauty and her splendor. The text talks about the, the city of Tyre coming. Look at verse 12. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. Tyre was this uh, embodiment, the epitome of wealth in the ancient world. It's not a perfect illustration, but if we're going to use a modern-day illustration, it would be like the richest foreign nation sending dignitaries to the first lady as she comes into her role to recognize her and to honor her and to bring her gifts. Recognize that this amazing nation of Tyre is uh, is not inviting the queen to come to them. They're going out of their way to come and visit her. This is a very big deal. This is a huge moment for this woman. And I want us to observe that there is a clear transfer of allegiance that is going on, that's being spoken of in verses 10 and 11. Hear, O daughter, consider, incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house. There's a change of family going on. And the king will desire your beauty since he is your Lord. Bow to him. The wife is being told to break ties with her old family and to form a new family with this king. As we look at the language of that, I imagine that many of us, if not most of us, and I would imagine particularly the women in the room, find some of this language maybe a little inconsiderate of the wife. Maybe a little unreasonable thinking about this. Forget your father's house, right? Since he, the king, is your lord, bow to him. And I want us to deal with this, because I think we need to own it. Like, this is what the text says, and let me submit this to us. 
that not only is this not uncommon in the ancient world, and this is just kind of normal uh, of what is going on here, but, but in many ways, what, what we're seeing is an expression of a principle that the scriptures actually affirm all the way back in creation. Genesis 2.24, right? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, we're not seeing that played out on the husband's side nearly as much, right? We're seeing it played out on the wife's side, and she is certainly bearing much of the weight of what is going on here with this quite possibly being kind of a, a political marriage, right, to be building alliances. But this idea of leaving and cleaving is something we see consistent in the scriptures. That is right, and it is good. The issue is, is we're seeing it played out in a public scale, in a royal context here. I also want us to note that the bride is not actually the only one who's having a change in relational dynamics. In the patriarchal culture of their day, yes, she is certainly having much of the change because she is expected to come under the king's care. But look at verse 16. In the place of your fathers shall be your sons. You'll make them princes in all the earth. I'll cause your name to be remembered, so on and so forth throughout the text. The king is also experiencing significant change here because he is now becoming the father of a nation. There is a lot of shifts in expectations. There's a lot of shifts in, in complexities of what this new relationship is going to look like. But I want to highlight this, most importantly, as we think about the bride. Really hold on to this this morning. That for the bride, this transfer of allegiance that is going on provides her with benefits simply because of her association with the king. I want to repeat that. Think about that. For the bride, this transfer of allegiance to coming under the king's care provides her with benefits simply by association. In other words, because of who the king is, because of his honor, she is honored. Because of his glory, she is glorified. The text says because of how splendid he is that the nations will seek her favor. There is a direct benefit to her as a result of this marriage where she is celebrated in a unique way as she's ushered into the king's presence, not because of anything inherent in her as wonderful as she might be, but because of the role that the king has. I want us to just step back from that for a moment. I want to recognize that apart from the, the cultural distinctions, I think there's a very clear gospel illustration to be seen here. And I want us to ask, just as we close, as we, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want us to ask this question. I want, to, I want us to just acknowledge something, that this is really amazing language for a wedding, is it not? It's very poetic. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's in the Psalms. Like, this is really significant here. And on first look, if you're married then you probably realize that a lot of this language is too good to be true, right? This is a huge, exalted language, and, and yes, we have to recognize that sometimes the, the Psalms can be hyperbolic, right? They can exaggerate for the sake of artistry, but there is a reality of the situation that needs to be considered. We need to, to ask, would this king that was supposed to conquer the nations, would he live into the hopes of this text? Did he live into God's call on his life? And we can't say for certain, but I, I think we, we can say this based on what we read in the Hebrew Bible, that on some level, maybe, he may have accomplished good things. But for the most part, 
the aspirations that Psalm 45 paints for not only this marriage, but for this king in his role, the answer is no. We don't know what king this is talking about from David's line. Some were better than others, but I want to suggest that this exalted language for the groom king is too good to be true. That it describes maybe hopes for the king more than the reality for what any king of Israel actually lived into. Because when we read all through the Hebrew Bible, we see that Israel's kings, some of them were good, some of them were bad, but all of them fell short, and none of them conquered the nations. And so actually, when you look at the historic uh, Jewish literature, what you find is that, yes, this text recognizes a present situation for this king who was getting married, but it also paints a picture of a hope to come. And this is why this text was viewed historically by, the, mess, uh, by the, the Jewish community as messianic, looking forward to a future king from the line of David. When we get to the end of the Hebrew Bible, it's like a story without an ending, right? Where the hopes that this paints are yet to come and we are left wanting for more. And as Jesus enters the story hundreds of years later, what we find is that God had a more creative way of filling out the hopes of this kingly silhouette than we could have ever imagined, right? We find that God himself chose to take on flesh, coming into David's line to be the the Messiah, the Mashiach in Hebrew, the king from David's line, the anointed one, to be the one that this text actually hopes for. In fact, the book of Hebrews picks up on this. Go to the book of Hebrews with me, just really fast. Book of Hebrews chapter 1, the author picks up on the fact that this text is hoping for more. And in chapter 1, verse 8, here is how it describes Jesus. But of the Son, being Jesus, he says, and he quotes Psalm 45, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. There was a unique tension that verse 6 painted for us, right? That the king of Israel was both a human being who was called to rule the nations justly, and especially Israel, and that somehow he is called God. And it is only in Messiah Jesus that that tension is resolved. The God who has taken on flesh in order to reign and rule not only over, but with his people. The book of Hebrews picks up and shows that the hope of Psalm 45 finds its fullest expression in Jesus, the Son. But he was different than the king that we expected. Right? He didn't come first to rule and reign to conquer his enemies, but he came to deal with the primary issue that existed, the issue of sin, the issue that we are inherently predisposed to rebel against God. He came to fix the issue that we have willingly rejected God, and as a result, our brokenness overflows into the world around us. Where the psalm talks about the king piercing the hearts of his enemies, we say yes and amen when Jesus returns as judge. But what we find in his first coming is that he first had to be pierced in order to save his people. And it's in his life and his death and his resurrection that he demonstrates that he is the king who his people had been waiting for, that we had been waiting for. And the result of his work is that instead of punishment, we trust in him and we long for him to come and take us to himself as a groom takes his bride. 
You see, this text paints a picture of the beautiful wedding day of the king of Israel taking his bride to himself. And in Jesus, what we find is that he is the victorious bridegroom who takes his church, who takes his family to share in his honor and to receive eternal life. If you're here and you've not turned to Jesus, the Bible invites us to trust in him for who he is and and what he's done. This is not some loose association. This is not me just kind of ascribing some sort of uh, value to Jesus amongst the other gods. That's not what is going on here. This is saying, Jesus, you are my Lord. It is a complete giving of oneself. It is, as we see in verse 10, forget your people and your father's house. It is turned to Jesus once and for all. Maybe for you, this is the first time, and I want to invite you to do that. You can do that right in your seat before you come and take communion with us. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time, but you feel the need to refresh yourself and truly believe the good news. I want to encourage you to turn to him in repentance and faith and come and join us as we remember the sacrificial king who conquered death on behalf of his people. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I just want to bring this to your attention. I want to recall what I said about how the best of relationships present this tension where there is joy to be found and yet there's challenge to be found in that relationship as, as kind of our rough edges are pointed out. I just want to ask this. If that's true of our, our earthly relationships, how much more should that be true of our relationship with the Lord, the one who we are called to have true and intimate, close relationship with? I want to encourage us two ways this morning. Number one is to lean into the Spirit's conviction. If you're here and you feel God doing something in you, don't turn away from that. Rest in that. Press into that. This weird thing happens when we get closer and closer to God in relationship where we see how great and holy he is and how we we see how broken and how far from him we are. And yet we see how great that chasm was that Jesus spanned in order to draw us to himself, in order to make us his beloved bride. So press into whatever the Spirit's doing, whether that's in some area of sin, maybe he's calling you to repent of that, Maybe it's in some area of taking a step of faith into something he desires you to do, step into that. Maybe it's just to believe what Jesus has done for you, and it's to believe upon him for who he is. The second thing is this, to joyfully rest in the finished work of Jesus. Jesus is the one who the psalm hopes for, the faithful spouse, the just and truthful, humble leader. There's a lot of talk as we're we're coming up here on, on the election shortly here as we're thinking about who should be the leader of our country. Let's think about who should be the leader of our world, right? Let's think about the person that we want to be in charge. And when we look at Jesus, we find that we're offered all the benefits and more of the greatest human relationships with none of the drawbacks. And all we are left to do is rest in him. He has not only been faithful to us, but he has been faithful for us as he lived a life that we could not as he died on a cross in our place, and as he rose, not because he needs life, he is life. In him is life. But so that we could know that in him we can receive eternal life as well. So all that is left is for us to trust in him and to respond in obedience this morning. I'm going to give us just a moment to reflect on this, the intimate language that we find in Psalm 45. And this is just a foretaste 
of the intimacy that God desires to have with you through Jesus. Let me pray for us. And as you come to the table this morning, I want us to recognize the great lengths that the Son of God went through in order to make that intimacy a reality. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you have spanned that chasm that was too much for us. That as we see ourselves as you see us, we, we see how wonderful and beautiful you are, and we see the dignity that you have bestowed upon every one of us as your image bearers. And yet we also see the brokenness, the rebellion in our hearts, that oftentimes our hearts beat for things that are not of you and things that do not honor you. And so, Lord, we come before you and we ask your forgiveness, and we pray that you'd cause us to repent by your spirit this morning. But Lord, I pray that you would not only leave us there, but that you would help us to believe upon the good news that you, Jesus, have come to rescue us, that you are the groom king who has come to draw us, your bride, your beloved one, to yourself. And as we come under your care, that just as the queen was honored and exalted simply by her association with this king, that simply because of our faith, and being united to you, we too will one day be glorified as you come to dwell with us. Father, help us to not only look back at this psalm, but look forward to the day where you will dwell with us, what this psalm looks forward to as well, where we will be restored in perfect relationship with you in a renewed world where there is no more pain and no more tears and no more death. Father, as we come to communion this morning, help us to rest in your finished work. Help us to be attentive to your spirits leading in us. And Lord, we pray that you'd be glorified in and through us. We pray this in Messiah's name. Amen.